it's sort of always sad when you miss out on a celebration, some sort of big event that you've been looking forward to. It's sad when you miss out, isn't it? Uh, even now, Sue, my wife, still remembers with sadness missing her year 12 formal because she couldn't uh, get out of bed because of the flu. We have a friend who very sadly missed her own wedding reception uh, because in the lead-up to the wedding day, she had some wisdom teeth out. Uh, by when, by the Saturday, she had an infection. By the reception, she was spending the night throwing up in the toilet. Uh, she ended up at the casualty ward while everyone else was enjoying her reception. It's really disappointing to miss out on a celebration that you've really been looking forward to, which is pretty much what many of the Thessalonians were feeling at the time the Apostle Paul wrote this letter of two Thessalonians to them. Did you notice that in the first couple of verses? Verse 1 again. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember from chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul has brought up this whole topic of the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord so as to encourage the Thessalonians to press on in their faith. Remember, this is a new little church. Uh, They sound like they're getting a bit of a tough time. And so Paul wanted to lift their spirits with the fact that Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, all those people who have persevered in their faith will be vindicated. All those people who have stuck with Jesus for the long haul, uh, they will be saved. They will be glorified. They will be shown to be in the right. And God will pay back trouble to anyone who has given grief to his people. And therefore the return of Jesus, Paul's point was in chapter 1, it's going to be a great day of celebration for the followers of Jesus. Mind you, that's not much comfort if Jesus has already come and gone, is it? which is what some of the Thessalonians are feeling. Uh, Verse 2 says that the letter is doing the round, supposedly from Paul himself, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And so now you've got these Thessalonians wandering around around thinking, we've missed it. The big day that we've been looking for, that big day of glorification and vindication, we totally missed it. Now, of course, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's pretty dumb that they would be thinking that. Because plenty of other parts of the Bible make it really clear that that the day of the Lord will be impossible to miss. It will be a cosmic event. You won't be able to miss it if you tried. The very fabric of this creation is going to vanish in a roar, we're told in 2 Peter. Just keep remembering, this is a new little church, very young Christians... Uh, The Jews had chased Paul out of town after only a couple of weeks. They haven't had a lot of teaching. They haven't got Bibles sitting around on chairs that they can check things out for themselves. Uh, These sorts of rumours, supposedly from Paul himself, uh, they would have put the, the church into a real flap. And so Paul is writing to them here in chapter 2, primarily as a call to calm. Hey, God, just relax. Take a deep breath. You haven't missed a thing. In fact, he goes on to say that Jesus could not have come back yet because certain things need to have happened before he comes back. Verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. 
And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul is there pointing out that a few things have got to happen before Jesus is going to return. In particular, he says there's going to be a rebellion in which a especially bad individual is going to set himself up as God. Uh, Paul calls this person the man of lawlessness. For the moment, though, he goes on to say, this man of lawlessness is being restrained. Verse 7. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be... Revealed. See that this lawless uh, person, see he's being held back for the moment, but come the right time, he will be revealed. And then Paul goes on to say that at that point, no less than Satan himself is going to trick a whole heap of people and lots will perish. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, now look, before we get too deep into this, at at least can you see the overall flow of this passage? Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, hey guys, don't worry, you have not missed the return of Jesus. Because before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a rebellion in which a man of lawlessness will be revealed He's being held back at the moment, but come time, he'll show up. He's going to cause a lot of trouble. But look, this has not happened yet. So Jesus could not have returned. That's the big flow of these verses. They are intended just to calm the Thessalonians down. It is therefore ironic that in verses intended to calm down the Thessalonians, this passage has sort of had the opposite effect in just about every Christian ever since. Uh, these, these verses seem to whip some people up into an incredible frenzy. I mean, my goodness, when is this going to happen? Who is this guy, the, the man of laws? What is this rebellion going to be like? And many people have gone to extraordinary lengths to combine these verses with other parts of the Bible, usually out of Revelation, and then they throw in a big dollop of imagination, they stir it around, and out pops these really elaborate, and I'm telling you, terrifying stories of what's going to happen in the future. And did you know there's going to be one world, one big worldwide government and you really shouldn't be using a credit card and they're going to put a computer chip under your skin and there's been no shortage of options over the years of who this man of lawlessness is. Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden. Or hey, is the man of lawlessness still to come? Is he actually going to be worse than all those other guys? Man, this could get scary. What are we going to do with this passage? Well, maybe we need to take a deep breath, calm ourselves down a little bit along with the Thessalonians. Try very hard, please, not to think about those Hollywood movies or those silly Christian novels that you may have been reading lately. Let's just have a think about the text. And the first thing we've got to notice from the text is the need to be really cautious in whatever we say about it because the verses themselves are too cryptic and too vague to be definite over. And we need to admit that up front. For starters, there is assumed knowledge in this passage. Look at verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? 
And now you know what's holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. See, this is stuff that Paul's already spoken to the Thessalonians about. He has not spoken to us about them. Uh, All we've got here is one end of the conversation. And you know how easy it is to go off half-cocked when you've only got half a conversation. We've got to be very careful in our conclusions here. Add to that, the language itself is really, it's, it's slippery. At times, this man of lawlessness is spoken of as if he's a person, as in verse 3. But then in verse 7, we're told that it's also a principle that's already at work. Uh, the restraining force that's presently holding back the man of lawlessness. It's talked of as if it's a person in verse 7, but in verse 6, it's, it's, the pronoun makes it sound like it's a thing. The end result is we've got to tread really carefully here. Uh, these verses were intended to evoke calmness in the Thessalonians. They ought to evoke caution in us. But for, but for what it's worth, let me offer an opinion about what I think is going on here. Uh, here are all the qualifications that the, you know, we've got to sit pretty loose to this passage. But let me give you an attempt at least at some degree of clarity. And quite simply, I think that perhaps the most reasonable approach to these verses is to see that the man of lawlessness has already been and gone. And the events described here are in fact a description of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Let me offer you a few reasons for thinking that. Reason one being, just because Paul says to the Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness hasn't come yet, That does not mean, obviously, that he couldn't have come between when Paul wrote the letter and us. The future for Paul can still be the past for us. And indeed, there's nothing in the text that conclusively says that the man of lawlessness will appear immediately before Jesus returns, simply that it will be sometime before Jesus returns. The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, it fits the passage. It is a future event at the time Paul wrote this letter. But more than that, it fits the passage because here's reason number two. The the deliberately vague and cryptic sort of language that is used here, it's very similar to other parts of the New Testament that also refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Paul is usually a pretty straight sort of speaker. Uh, If you've read much of his letters in the New Testament, you'll know that. He's the sort of guy who will call a spade a spade. All of a sudden, here in chapter 2, it's almost as if he's deliberately being vague. Verse 5, for example, instead of saying straight out what is holding the man of lawlessness back, we get all this sort of phrase like, and you know what is holding him back. You know, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It really sounds like he doesn't want to say too much in writing. Friends, that is exactly how other parts of the New Testament talk about the Roman Empire in regards to the destruction of Jerusalem. For example, in Mark chapter 13, when Jesus is actually predicting the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, uh, as it turns out, by the Romans, Mark, the writer, actually bleeps out Jesus' words and inserts the phrase, let the reader understand. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Again, look, it makes sense because you don't want a letter like that falling into the wrong hands. If... uh, 
if Mark's gospel or Paul in this letter to the Thessalonians, if some people see it and it sort of sounds a little bit anti-Roman in some of the things it's saying, you can get into a lot of trouble. And remember, the Thessalonians, they're living in a town where they're surrounded by people who would love to cause a lot of trouble for them. No, no, I'm thinking that this almost deliberately use of vague language, it's pretty similar to other parts of the New Testament which talk about the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. I want to tentatively suggest that that's what's going on here. In fact, if we pursue the idea a little bit further, what you find is that the historical events actually fit pretty closely to what the verses say. Okay, It's not a, it's not a complete fit. There, there's some issues, but it's not bad. For example, verse 3 speaks of a rebellion accompanying the man of lawlessness. Notice that the text does not say that the man of lawlessness will lead the rebellion, just that he will be revealed at the time of the rebellion. That's what happened in Jerusalem, AD 70. Uh, If you don't know the history, certain self-styled Jewish messiahs popped up and led the Jews in Jerusalem to revolt against Rome. Uh, They massacred the Roman guard, and so the Roman emperor came down from an enormous height onto Jerusalem so as to squash this rebellion. And on that reading, I'm thinking that the Roman emperor of the time, a bloke named Vespasian, I'm thinking that he's in fact the man of lawlessness. And again, that's not a bad fit. Verse 4, we're told that this man of lawlessness, revealed at the time of the rebellion, will exalt himself over everything that is called God is to be worshipped, set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's what happened. Uh, When Jerusalem was destroyed, the Roman soldiers carried their battle flags, which bore the emperor's image. They carried their battle flags into the temple, or what was left of it, and proceeded to offer sacrifices to the Roman emperor within the ruins of the Jewish temple, Quite literally, Paul's words could be seen to be coming true. The emperor did set himself up as God, receiving offerings in God's temple. Verses 5 and 6 talk about the man of lawlessness being held back or restrained before this rebellion. Maybe that's a reference to the Roman law and order system, the, the Roman Senate, who at the time and leading up to that event were a bit of a tapering force on the emperor. Uh, a previous emperor had actually wanted to go and ransack Jerusalem, but the Senate had hosed him down and calmed him off. The rebellion, the man of lawlessness, the holding back, it makes sense in the, in the historical events, as does the reference to people being deceived and perishing because they don't follow the truth. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accord with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved it could well be a reference to the thousands of jews who perished in jerusalem when it fell to rome because you see what happened is that the christians in the city for their part they fled from jerusalem en masse Fearing what was about to happen because of the Jewish rebellion, the the Christians, they just got out. They heeded the warning that they perceived in Mark chapter 13 and the Christians just fled the city. The Jews remained uh, because their leaders were telling them that they, this was going to be the great messianic victory against Rome. Having rejected Jesus, the true Christ, 
the Jews now followed false Christs. People jumping up and claiming to be the Messiahs who were going to beat up Rome for everyone to see. And the only thing that everyone saw was that they were deluded. It was one of the most terrible massacres of history. Thousands of Jews were slaughtered by Rome in absolutely uh, shocking circumstances. And in a very real way, they perished because they refused to love the truth. The truth is that Jesus is the Christ, uh, whom they rejected, so as to follow self-styled military Christs who led them to destruction. Put it all together, I want to tentatively suggest that the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman emperor is is possibly what Paul is writing about here. That he's effectively saying to the Thessalonians, look, I know you've heard that Jesus has has come back. He hasn't. Don't worry. Just remember I told you that before Jesus was going to come back, things will get really bad with Rome. I don't want to write too much in the letter in case it falls into the wrong hands. But remember when I was with you, we talked all about that. It hasn't happened yet, has it? So just rest easy. You haven't missed the second coming. I'm thinking that's how the chapter works. Hey, but don't forget, it's it's a tough chapter. And uh, I've just given you one side of uh, a story, so you might be thinking there, sitting there thinking, well, that sounds pretty convincing, but it's probably because I haven't got the time to tell you any of the other things. There are, there are problems with it, but I'm thinking that's how the passage fits together. But if that is how the passage fits together, what has it got to do with us? I mean, is this just chapter an interesting uh, instance of ancient history. Well, what do these verses have of any relevance to us living here in sophisticated Dubbo 2009? Well, I actually think there's a very big lesson for, of comfort here for us, which pops up irrespective of who the man of lawlessness turns out to be. If you aren't convinced about how I'm seeing the passage, I think there is actually a word of comfort here, uh, irrespective of who the man of lawlessness is, because the one thing you cannot miss in these verses, is that in all of this, the rebellion, the the evil, the lawlessness, God remains in control. Verses like verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 11, they speak of people not revealing themselves but being revealed. They They speak of things happening just not just at any time but at the proper time. They speak of not just a delusion happening, but God sending the delusion. In all of it, it is God who is pulling the strings. It is God who is organising and moving things along. At no point has God lost the plot. Has no, at no point are things out of God's control. At no point is God out of his depth. Everything is happening here. No matter how scary or tragic it might have seemed on the ground, everything is happening to God's agenda. And that's a timeless lesson. That's a reassuring lesson. That everything that happens, even when it seems to be going pretty bad, even when a man of lawlessness is running around apparently amok, even in a terrible weekend of bushfires and economic gloom, God has it in hand. And sin and evil never never is in control. 
That's a good thing to remember. It's a good way to look out into this world. Because I'm telling you, the things of this world can seem very impressive and very reliable. And we'll turn on the news this coming week and it's going to be full of stories about financial economic packages and how President Obama is going to save America, if, if not the world. And all those things have their place and all those things have their role. But it's not the main game. The main game is God. And we must not let ourselves lose perspective of the fact that no matter what is going on in our life, no matter how good or bad it might be, it is still God who is the one in control. It is still God who is the one that we should place our confidence in. It is still God who we should seek to give our priority to. And perhaps in the end, that's a lesson that this passage in 2 Thessalonians, that's, that's a good lesson to point us to. And this just reminds us afresh about God. Because there are times in our life when you can just feel a little bit out of control, can't you? A little bit out of your depth. Our problems are everywhere. We've got so many decisions to make about stuff. Life's hard. Maybe you're there now. And the temptation is to panic a bit because you feel out of control. Friends, the mistake is in thinking that we were ever in control. We are always being upheld by the grace and the sovereignty of God no matter what is going on. And the comfort of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, friends, the comfort is Jesus hasn't come back yet. You haven't haven't missed anything. The day is yet to come. And it will be a day when you will be vindicated. It will be a day when you will be glorified. It will be a day when you see your Lord and Saviour one on one. It will be a great day. And it's still to come. And until it arrives, no matter what is going on, God has not let you go. He is not out of his depth. He is in control. And he is good. I'll pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of this passage, from this passage, of your sovereignty in every single thing we do. Father, we admit that we we struggle to really understand fully what's going on in these verses. But Father, thank you for showing us in them that no matter what they are describing, you are in control. No matter what is going on anywhere, at any moment, you are in control. Father, for those of us here who are finding it hard to remember that because life is pressing in a little bit, uh, please help us by your word and spirit Please calm us. Thank you that you are sovereign. Amen.